Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott, Dr. Jake Skolfine, and as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support of the show. You can see the video version at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube. Uh, the audio versions on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you can find podcasts pretty much. I want to also give a shout out to the Funk Hall of Fame and Exhibition Center in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm official funk ambassador. Keep the funk alive. Get more information by going to thefunkcenter.org. And also make sure you subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. Never miss a thing. For today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studio a man who was practically born with drumsticks in his hands, Mr. Charles <laughs> Puji Bell. Starting at a very young age. Rattlers, I think you had drumsticks. <laughs> at a very young age, by the early 1980s, he was off and running as one of the top session stage drummers in the business. Ranging from hip-hop to R&B to jazz, Bell's credits include Don Blackman, the Force MDs, Johnny Kemp, Shaka Khan, Noel Pointer, Kirk Whalem, Erica Badu, Vanessa Williams, Stanley Clark, Victor Wooden, and a longtime recording relationship with Marcus Miller. Yep. In addition to that, since 2004, he's released five albums of his own and is presently working on another epic record. Fuji. Hello. Fuji, how are you, man? I'm all right, Scott. I like that whole funk ambassador thing. I want to get one of those badges. I want to be a funkin', funk ambassador, too. You need to call those people up. I like that. Funk ambassador. Sounds very cool. Yeah, you get to, I get to verify if it's funky or not. There you go. Someone <laughs> has to do it. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Yeah. So where are you coming to us from today? Uh, right now, I am in my basement in Pittsburgh at my house where I spend probably way, way, way too much time. But uh, my it's my workspace, so I have a, a studio set up down here. I, I record drum tracks and vocals and horns and guitars and, and, and stuff. And I'm in here working on my next project. Um, it's really strange. I started out... Well, first of all, the last record I put out was called exhibition continues so i did a record with more of a contemporary jazz kind of acoustic kind of record and i had strings and and it was very lush and stuff but it was just something that i wanted to do you know my, my father was a uh, god bless him was a uh, jazz musician but he also was classically trained so i heard you know strings and stuff in my house all the time so um when I started working on that last record, you know, my father had just passed away. So, you know, I was just, guess I was just feeling the influence. So, you know, I think it's a, you know, I think Exhibition Continues was, was a good record, but it, I fell prey to like a lot of things. Um, that was a veered away from what I, you know, people know me for, or, or even I consider myself just to be a musician. But, um, and I, you know, I signed to a new record company, um, who didn't have all their stuff in place like they told me they had. So the record got lost in the sauce. Right. And, uh, but if hindsight's 2020 and it usually is, um, the record company messed up and they have apologized profusely. So I'm getting a lot more support for the current project that I'm working on, which is yet untitled. 
Um, I was down in the dumps because the last record I thought was really good and it didn't do that well. So I was really like, wow, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. So this past summer, I was working at a place in uh, Homewood, which is a, a very, very old black community here in Pittsburgh at the YMCA. And uh, the Y, uh, they have a program called the Lighthouse Program. It's run by a guy named James Brown, an unfortunate name for him because obvious reasons. But anyway, he was able to get the Heinz Endowment to give him a million dollars, and he built a million-dollar recording studio. And so this past summer, he had a thing called the Startup Music Program, and it was basically, you know, going to give young kids between like 14 to 18 music business 101 classes, right? And I was one of the mentors or teachers or whatever. But, you know, all the really kids, all they really care about is hip-hop, right? All right. So anyway, I'm watching these kids work, and I'm watching them how they put their, these what they call beats, what I call small musical vignettes. But I'm watching them put these things together. And, you know, and one thing was prevalent. They kept going to this site called Splice. And I'm like, well, what is, what is this, right? Oh, well, you know, this is a site where you can go and uh, pick sounds, chords, guitar, any, any kind of sound in the world. And it might, you know, somebody might play two bars, one bar, you know, or just one beat or something. And they would take all these different things, call all these different things, and then turn them into one of their hip-hop beats, right? And I went, wow, you know, this is really kind of cool. And I said to myself, well, I wonder what would happen if I tried to use this site. What could I come up with? And um, so going from not knowing what to do, right, I found this site. And it's just like something turned on, right? And I felt like young again and stuff, right? And I started working on these songs. And at first it was a little, eh, it was okay. But the more I did it, more and more I got, I got really, you know, I got good at it. And um, so I've come up with, you know, if, you know, if people want funk, right? This record is oozing with funk. So, I mean, I have like really good jazz funk tunes. I have straight up and down R&B kind of funk tunes that kind of remind me of the period somewhere between 19, say 1997 to about 2000 or so, when things were still really kind of, uh, still had a little music going on. I got a little Afrobeat flavor going on. So <clears throat> I'm really, really, really excited about this new pro I don't have a name for it, but I'm really excited about this new project. Now, here's, here's the kicker, right? So I, I was over in Europe. I did a tour um, of Bratislava and Slovakia and, and, you know, I mean, Slovakia, basically, for about a week. At the end of that week, my record company is a German company, and it's called Leopard, and it's owned by a company called Delta Music, which is some big German conglomerate, right? Anyway. I go to Cologne to cut the drum tracks, right? Uh, <clears throat> so I show up, and, and the record company president, whose name is Jochen Becker, and a very, 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 and like a German version of, uh, who would he be a German version of? The guy who worked for Warner Brothers for a long time, whose name I can't remember right now, but if I said it, 
you would know who I'm talking about. He like produced Yellow Jackets. He produced like Miles' record when he came to Warner Brothers. He's passed on. But my point is, he's a real Jockham is a real record guy, cut from that cloth of of the Erdogans, or you know what I mean. He's one of those kind of guys. But he, you know, he's busy. He's busy, you know, doing this record, doing that record. So he hadn't had time to listen to my my demos and stuff. He just knew I was coming to cut drums. So I get there and we see pulls up. Wow, man, this is funky. This is great grooves and this is amazing. So he said, well, how many songs do you have? I said, uh, I think I got 22. He went, 22? What? I said, well, look, man, we don't have to do all 22 songs. You know, we could just pick 10 or 12 and, you know, call it a day, you know? And he was like, no, but they all sound so good. We got to put out 22. We got to put out all this stuff. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we got to do it. So in three days, over a three-day period of time in a studio in Cologne, I cut 22 drum tracks, three takes each, right? And uh, and it's it was a hell it was a hell of a feat. And um, putting this thing together is like you know my quick math says 66 takes. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That that is correct. And so, but then you know you, again you have to like go through all those takes and then find the best ones or with the technologies, which ones you're going to put together and merge and so forth and so on. But in the midst of doing that, then, you know, a lot of these samples, some of the samples on the music I'm keeping, but a lot of the stuff has been replaced by humans. Right. So, you know, reached out to my good friend, Bobby Sparks, uh, who plays with Snarky Puppy currently, but he does his, had put out a great record last year called Schizophrenia. Uh, crazy funky. If you haven't heard it, Go go on Spotify and find Bobby Sparks' record. It's it's on Stevie Wonder called Bobby up on the phone to say that some of the most innovative stuff he's heard in years. And Bobby didn't even know how Stevie got his phone number, right? Mm-hmm. But so Bobby Sparks is on the record. I reached out to my big brother Marcus Miller. He's on the record. Jazz legend Ron Carter is playing the bass. He's on the record. Um, I'm waiting on tracks to come back from the great guitarist Vernon Reed. I got the great guitarist Dean Browning. Bobby Broom and Alan Cato play with Michelle and Dave Cello and Dave Dyson on bass play with Michelle and Dave Cello. Um, it's just a, a, a mix, and I'm about to record the alto saxophone player Kenny Garrett. Um, there's just so many people, you know. And the thing that's that's just so awesome is that you know I have no budget, right? I have a licensing deal. I don't have like a pocket full of money. I'm not a rich guy. But I'm reaching out to these guys, and 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 um, uh, people are 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 reaching back and and are, are sharing and donating their 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 talents with me. You know what I mean? And and it's truly just it's just mesmerizing. You know the amount of of love that I have received from all these world-renowned and great musicians who could have very simply just said, well, Fuji, no, man, you know, I, I need this amount of money and this, that, and the other. But guys are looking out and coming through for me. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about this, about this record, you know. And, and uh, it's a labor of love, especially in, the, in this day and age of, you know, people have so many inter- so many entertainment choices and Netflix just my god just watch you know it would be imp- you'd probably have to spend three years just to watch their entire library right so um, 
so my, I, you know, is that my point is, it's just that it's it's increasingly more difficult to do something like what I'm attempting to do right now than it would have been in say 1990. You know, record business had money, and it, it was still capable of getting a nice budget from from even a jazz label. You know, let, let me jump in if I can. Yeah, hit me. That's awesome news. Exciting. Can't wait to hear it. Um, but um, so you're going to put out all 22 tracks? The record company wants to put, is putting out all 22. It's going to be um, a double double vinyl, double CD. And the songs, you know, I'm, I, the songs that don't, aren't able to fit in the time allotment of the vinyl or, or, you know, they'll all fit on the CD. But what we plan to do is um, uh, put the tracks up online. You know what I mean? So if you buy, if you buy, the, um, if you buy the vinyl, you'll be able to go online and download the stuff that you didn't get. If it, you know what I mean? Because I'm not going to be able to get all 22 songs on two sides of vinyl. That's not no going yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? So, but yeah... You know, we're gonna we're going we're going for the gusto here, Scott. We're going we're we're it's gonna be Miller time or a lot of crying. One of those <laughs> way to make up for, for a little less time. Um Yeah. So when you're when you're working like that with all these cats, how much uh direction or input do you give them or do you just tend to let them do their thing? Um when you when you're when you're working with world-renowned guys, you really don't. You know, I might say, "Hey, look, I need you to double the melody, or your solo would start here, right?" And then, you know, sometimes I'll I'll make suggestions. You know, I was thinking that the the, the guitar part could do this, so I give them. Like I had a great bass player in London named Don Chandler who plays bass with UB40, right? Uh, currently. Uh, believe it or not, they're still working. But he's an amazing reggae bass player, like a reggae-ish kind of song. And I, you know, uh, I play bass very poorly, very badly. You know what I mean? But I made a, you know, a scratch version on a bass, and I, and I sent it. I said, look, this is in the realm of what I want to do. If you want to do something like what I gave you, go ahead and do it. If you think what I gave you is just, is just nonsense, then completely ignore it and do your own thing. You know, I think the most important thing when working with anybody in the studio is being uh, smart enough to let the people and trusting enough to let them express themselves, let them be who they are. When you have a musician and you allow him to be who he is, you're going to get a good performance. When you put reins on somebody like the guy, like guys who play on Broadway, so it's paying good bread. But they got, you know, there's a certain thing they have to do a certain way every time they play the show. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's, you know, different different type of discipline. But so if you have a guy who's doing something like that or a guy who comes from a regimented thing, say, hey, man, express yourself. Just be who you are. They usually go, yes, can't wait to, you know what I mean? So I give, some, you know, as I digress, I give some direction. But when I'm talking to great, you know, Marcus Miller or Dean Brown or Vernon Reed, they you just want them to play and and hope hope that they like the song. You know, it's probably the most important thing. You know, you, you don't want to you don't want somebody playing on something that they don't like because they're not going to express themselves. 
you know, this would be like, well, I'm doing this because you're my friend kind of thing. You know, so I'm hoping there's, there's that I'm doing because I'm your friend. But I'm also hoping that they, they heard the song and said, oh, yeah, I want to be a part of that. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. I don't, I, don't try to, I don't try to be a traffic cop too much. I guess it would be pretty awkward, though, if uh, they gave you something and you were like, I don't think this really fits, but how do I negotiate that? Um, well, I'll put it to you this way. I've had, I'm working with a, uh, a young bass player out from Detroit. His name is Brandon Rose, right? And um, he, he's an amazing bass player, but he's also an amazing vocalist. So he's singing on the, on, on the stuff, it's, you know, he's from Detroit. So I'm like, yeah, man, you're going to be the second coming of Michael Henderson, right? And uh, so, you know, we're going back and forth on the length of the verse and so forth and so on. But again, I don't have any ego about my stuff. So if somebody sends me something and it's cool and I feel it doesn't fit in that particular song that I'm working on, else hell, I'll, I'll make a song to go with it. <laughs> I'm not going to let the track go to waste. You know, if, it, if it's somebody's trying to uh, put a square, a square peg in a round hole, you know, you just move that square peg to a song that it would fit. But when dealing with so many great musicians, they're, 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 you know, they're like, like water going into a glass or something. They just take the shape of, of the song and, and, and the stuff. That's the beauty of working with guys, you know, in our age group and a little bit younger. You know what I mean? They just kind of just, oh, well, this needs this, and then they just do it. You know what I mean? So it's very, very rare that you get something back and you go, ah, I'm not going to be able to use that. That's, it happens, but, like, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, when's the last time you hit the lottery for, like, 100 mil? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you dig what I'm saying? Yep, yep. Well, let's, uh, let's rewind a little bit, uh, Pooji. We certainly look forward to uh, that record. I mean, I can't wait, and we'll maybe uh, hit it again before we sign off just to keep it fresh in people's minds. Cool. But um, i got to know what it was like if you can describe it growing up in your musical household when you were a kid and being exposed to some of those, you know, musicians that you're exposed to at an early age. Uh, a, a jazz upbringing is unlike anything else on the planet earth, you know? So to be able to go and see, uh, you know, people like Ron Carter or Richard Davis or, Eddie Gomez or, or, or Ornette Coleman or Mary Lou Williams in your living room. Please, well, I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So, you know, Mary Lou Williams was from Pittsburgh as, as my dad. And so she was in New York playing somewhere. And her and my pop were friends. So she came over to the house. And there was a woman by the name of Phyllis Garland. Phyllis Garland, who also was from Pittsburgh, but she was a writer and a, 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 a critic for Ebony Magazine. Right. So here we have, uh, you know, so social, like cultural light, you know, black folks in my dad's living room at two or three o'clock in the morning. Right. And they got in an argument about something. Right. Him and Mary Lou got into some musical argument. Right. Next thing I know, my dad's coming in and waking me up at like two in the morning. Get up. I'm like, what? Right. You know what? We have to play Take Five right now. So Take Five by Dave Brubeck, right? We have to play Take Five right now. And I went, we do? He said, get up, let's go. 
So you know, go out to the living room. And Pooji, this is Mary. Mary, this is Pooji. Pooji, sit down. So he starts playing take five. I play take five with my dad, right? And he looks over to Mary and says, see, right? And I don't know what this, to this day, I don't know what the argument was about, <laughs> right? And Mary said, okay, okay. And then she sat down at the piano and said, all right, young man, play this. And she started playing the blues or playing something, right? So I joined in and played along, you know what I mean? And and then I think it was about music education or or something. But anyway, I played with my dad and I played with Mary. And I said, well, it was nice meeting you, Miss Mary. And I went back to bed. But those were typical type of things that, you know, happened, you know, in, in and around my house in New York City. Like the great bass player played with Miles Davis, Paul Chambers, lived right down the street. So I used to see Paul all the time. Him, him and my pop were thick as thieves or uh, Archie Shep or Andrew Hill. These are people who were in my house. You know, and jamming, jamming with my dad. So I just, you know, you, as a kid, you just think it's, oh, my dad knows these musicians. They're, you know, they come over and they play, you know, and sometimes I play with them. So now, of course, you know, as an adult, you know, I, you know, yeah, I was very, very fortunate. I was very, very lucky to have all those experiences. And still to this day to be able, the, the, the folks who are still here, able to call them friends like Ron Carter's like a stepdad to me you know what I mean and um yeah, so it was something else you know or and in those days too there were bands you know nobody wanted to be a rapper everybody was in a band you know? <clears throat> so I was in a kid band with uh you know great guitar player who lived around the corner from me his name was Bobby Broom and um he went to music and art and it was a great keyboard player named Terry Burris who went on to work with Phyllis Hyman and a host load of people in Shaka Khan and all these different people. We did a, a talent contest at Music and Art. And at that talent coach contest, uh, the, 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 the Weldon Irvine, who was a writer and arranger for Nina Simone, was at, one, was at the show. He came up to us after the show. And he wrote a play called Young, Gifted, and Broke. Right, with you know, play on Young Gifted and Black, which he had written the lyrics for for Nina Simone. And um, he had us go, Well, you know, I'm doing this show and I need a kid band. You guys are really good. Come out to Brooklyn and I want you to read these lines and play and this, that, and the other. So we went out there, we met the director, we read the lines, we all got the job. But on that same day, though, I met Marcus Miller, I met Donald Blackman, I met Denzel Miller. I met Bernard Wright, and so what, 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 I, year was I, that, what, what year was that? This, this is like nineteen seventy, somewhere between seventy-seven and seventy-eight. You know what I mean? I was going into my last year of high school, so it was probably seventy-seven. And uh, but that 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 meeting Weldon literally changed the my musical landscape because he introduced me to all these musicians who I had no idea who they were. You know, I mean, I had never heard of, you know, Marcus play or whatever, you know what I mean? And I remember Marcus telling me, he said, yeah, when y'all came out there today, I looked at y'all and I said to myself, oh, they can't play, right? Because, you know, you had, you know, Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan. Each borough had guys, you know what I mean? who were, were good, but there was no internet. There was no so-and-so, you know, so 
word of street, word of mouth, word of legend, you know what I mean? But usually the best players playing R&B or funk or jazz or whatever it was, you know, there was legends from Brooklyn. There was legends from Queens. There was legends from the Bronx. But not too many guys knew anybody, any good young guys in Manhattan. We were always kind of looked frowned upon. You know, it's like, oh, you rich socialite fools. You know what I mean? Even though none of us had any money. But anyway, but Marcus, you know, we started playing and Marcus was like, oh, wow, they, they actually can play. So we did that play for about two years. It was an off-Broadway play, but it, it stayed open for about two years. And during that period of time, I learned so much about uh, playing in a pocket and uh, grooving and, and the importance of grooving. Um, but then, too, back in those days, there were places to play. You know, so I lived on 93rd Street. On 94th Street, there was a club called The Cellar. The Cellar was the R&B club. So at The Cellar, Johnny Kemp, before anybody knew who he was, he performed there all the time. Uh, Kashif would be in there. Um, who else? Brass, no, not Brass, yeah. Not Brass Construction, a group called Platinum Hook. But there were a whole bunch of, the group changed. A whole bunch of those musicians worked in that club. So I got to play in there a lot. Right. But right down the street, there was another club on 96th Street called McKell's. McKell's was a famous jazz spot. Right. So somewhere about my 18th and 19th birthday, I started playing with a trumpet player named Hugh Masakela. Mm-hmm. Hugh Masakela lived in McKell's. He played there all the time. Right. So there would be days when <laughs> I don't know how I did this when I was thinking back on it. I would play a set at McKell's on their break. I would run up to the cellar and I'd play a set there with Johnny or Melissa Morgan or whoever was there that day, right? On their break, I'd run back to McKell's to play Hugh's second set. At the end of Hugh's second set, I'd run back to the cellar to play the last set there, right? All right. Then after that, I would run uptown to Harlem and then play the after hours joints, right? So there was a, a place called the Press Club, and there was another place called Frank's Loft. So basically, their thing didn't start to about 2.33 in the morning, right? And the windows are blacked out. <laughs> and it was just mostly just like, you know, hustlers and, and their girlfriends and stuff. You know what I mean? So, but you go in there and you play top 40, you know, to like, you know, started at 3, you might play to like 5 in the morning, you know, that I'd run home try to sleep a little bit and go off to high school and then sleep for my, through my first two classes. <laughs> <laughs> so you have four gigs in one 24 hour period. Oh yeah. 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 Wow. You know, and, and, and take everybody to McDonald's at lunchtime. Yeah. I had a pocket full of money for a 17 year old or whatever I was at the time, you know, but there were places to play in New York. Like now there's no places for young positions to learn how to play. Um, so that's why we have so many gospel musicians now, because the black church is the only place where young black kids can learn how to play. There's no more music in schools. There's no more, you know, the, 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 the club scene for the most part is, is, is nothing like what it used to be. You know what I mean? There was a time on 125th street, you could start on eighth Avenue and walk all the way over to Madison Avenue. And there were places to play. There was live music going on. You know what I mean? But all that stuff is gone. So that's, a, you know, now all the young black musicians come from the church and 
they all end up imitating and emulating each other because that's all they know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And even though what they do is a very, very beautiful thing and a very, very, uh, and the tradition of African-American music, a very original thing that they do, but they don't know anything outside of that box of that it's, world. It's, so it's slowed innovation. Yeah. 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 Um, is it true you were on Mike Douglas when you were five? Yes, sir. And not, not, not in the studio audience? I was on Mike Douglas when I was five with Pearl Bailey. Wow. With Pearl Bailey. And I really had a bad experience with Pearl Bailey. So she wanted me to sit on the piano because I was a cute kid, right? She wanted me to sit on the piano while she did her song. And I told her with a straight face, I said, I came here to play my drums at five, right? And then she she said to me that if I didn't sit on the piano, that she would break my hands and I would never play the drums again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which at which point I started crying, right? And then, you know, uh, that's when she was still married to Louis Belson, right? So Louis comes over and he he's apologizing profusely, you know what I mean? And I remember he gave me a little tiny little uh, symbol. Uh, I wish I would have kept that symbol. But he gave me a symbol and said, oh, you know, Pearl just can ha- has her way sometimes. And she didn't mean that. We're so sorry. And You know what I mean? But I did Mike Douglas show. Actually, I did it twice. I did it twice. You know, I did it that one time. And then we did it. We did it again uh, after that. I was also on a TV show. You're old enough to remember. I was on a TV show with... Uh, Oh, what's his guy's name? Wore glasses, Steve something. But it was called Hollywood Palace. Oh, uh, Steve. Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The glasses Steve, with the Steve, glasses. Steve Allen. Exactly. I was on that show. I was on, remember a TV show called What's My Line? Yeah. Did that one. Uh, had a minute when I did uh, TV commercials. Did some, I did some bird's eye commercials. I did some Hot Wheels commercials. Uh, well, like, like uh, Alan Rippey that used to... Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rodney, Rodney Allen Pusey, yeah. <laughs> remember, remember, remember that margarine that you would eat the margarine and a crown would appear on your head? Imperial, yeah. Imperial. I, I did one of those. Wow. I did one of those, yeah. You know? How'd you get your nickname? Uh, everybody in my family has a, either a I, E, or a Y kind of sounding nickname so you know we have a bubby we have a snooky we have a tookie we have a snubby so i ended up being the poogee so that's you could you could have just been charlie well just the the one the the, (laughs) the one the one problem that i've always had you know charles was my dad's name but the one problem i've always had with that name is all the different derivatives of that name and I had a music teacher when I was in high school. I can't remember his name, but he was a bit of a drag, right? And because, you know, I was the best player in the class. So he would always single me out to get the rest of the class to pay attention. You know what I mean? And so he would always call me Chuck Bell, Chuck Bell, Chuck Bell. Uh, so I, 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 I became to hate Chuck. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't like this guy, Chuck. He's always getting in trouble, you know. And uh, so Chuck, Chucky, Charlie, 
uh, Carlos, even though I had, I had a, I had a, a Spanish girlfriend one point when I was young and she used to call me Carlos and I was like, Oh, she's fine. So that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it, Depends on whose mouth it's coming out of. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you know, you know the deal, Scott, you know the deal. Um, <clears throat> yes, indeed. So who are some of your primary drumming influences, both from the jazz and from the, maybe from three, but certainly from jazz and funk perspectives and maybe R&B too? Um, well, you know, I've always picked the guys, uh, the majority of the guys I always picked were guys who were somewhere in between all, all, all genres. One of the biggest influences on me was Harvey Mason. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, and I told Harvey this, and he looked at me like he, and he said, you're like a little bit nuts. But I told him there was a time when I would go to the local record shop. Remember that? The local record shop? And yes. Me too. And I would look for new records. And I told Harvey, I said, if I picked up the record, and if I didn't see your name on it, even if the guy at the record store said it was good, I didn't buy it. He said, are you kidding me, Poogee? I went, no, I'm dead serious. I said, if your name was on the record, I didn't give it. I didn't care what record it was. I bought it, you know, because I said, if I said, if Harvey Mason's on this record, something about it got to be good. So, excuse me. So he was a huge influence on me. Billy Cobham was a massive influence on me. Um, uh, Tony Williams was an influence on me. Um I guess as the funk drummers uh, would been any of the drummers that played with P funk, primarily though Jerome Bailey was a, was a huge influence on me. Um, Steve Ferrone, massive influence on me. Um, Jelly Bean, who's actually a guitar player who played drums with the time, you know, um, he was a massive influence on me. Um, you know, and 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 a bunch of you know a bunch of drummers from from the neighborhood that nobody you know ever heard of that you know i watched growing up it was like the guy named bernie davis in new york who played with stevie winwood for a while but he was a huge influence on me it was a guy from the bronx his name was pumpkin pumpkin made some of the early hip-hop records um he was an amazing drummer he was a huge influence on me buddy williams you know studio drummer steve gad uh russ conkle uh I can't think of his name, but the guy who played drums on all the Barry White records, or a lot of them, he was a massive influence on me. Sticks Hooper from the Crusaders, uh, and Dugu Chancellor, Leon Chancellor, played with George Duke all those years. He was a huge influence on me. You know, anybody who, you know, I always appreciate drummers. You, you got two type of drummers. You got drummers who bring the sound out of the drum. You know what I mean? Have a pretty sound and the drum resonates and the sound comes back out at you. And you have drummers who play the sound back into the drum. You know what I mean? So I've always tried to avoid the guys who did that, the latter, played the drums, you know, sound back into the drum. Steve Gadd, massive influence on me. I love the way Steve Gadd is one of the most musical drummers I've ever heard. Um, press roll playing fool, Buddy Rich, you know. Um, Mad, mad love and appreciation for him. Elvin Jones, Max Roach, Art Blakey, you know. So, I mean, I've, I've called my drumming, you know, John Bonham, you know, from just a whole bunch of different places. I, you know, 
I don't have musically um, bigoted ears. I'm willing to listen to whatever. If I have any anything that I don't like to listen to, uh, music that is uh, somehow has some kind of ties to something that feels satanic in nature, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to have anything to do with music that's, you know... It's negative. Yeah, just in general. It just has negative a, energy. Yeah. You know, um, it, has, it has a negative connotation just in general. You know what I mean? So, okay, so you've named a lot of guys. From that, how did you distill it into your own style? It's real simple. First thing you do is you steal, you copy and you steal. I got the gig with Shaka Khan when I was young because I could play exactly like Steve Ferron. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, just like you have so many bass players who sound like Marcus Miller. You have so many horn players who sound like Kenny Garrett. Out of that stealing, though, you, you start to develop your own personality. You know, so if, if Steve Ferron played something and he played two hits on his left hand and three hits on his right hand. Well, then I switched that up and play two hits on my right hand and play three hits on my left hand. So just like just doing little, little tiny things and inserting your own personality will help you capture and create your own sound. The thing you can't be afraid of though, is what you sound like. And a lot of people are you like, have you, you know, undoubtedly you've seen this in your travels. So you have the person who sings in the shower but then they hear themselves on a $3,000 studio microphone. They go, oh, my God, that's what I sound like. It's like, yes, that's what you sound like. So being able to embrace your sound, be able to say, okay, this is me. This is what I do. I don't sound like this guy. I don't sound like that, like, like that guy, you know, and being okay with that, being, being acceptance, acceptance of who and what you are when you're playing music. It's one of the most important things that any musician can, could ever learn. You know, now in this YouTube world we live in and, you know, you go on YouTube and you see all these guys doing 59 back somersaults on the drum set and pirouettes and, 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 and stuff and people copying each other and copying each other. So in my day, yeah, you stole and you copied, but you had to show up at a gig and have your own personality. You know what I mean? When everything was said and done. So, yeah. So, sounding like Steve Ferron helped me get the gig with Shaka Khan. But once I got the gig, though, I started playing my own stuff. I used that to get my foot in the door. But once I got on the gig, I started playing my own stuff. You yeah. know, I started playing the stuff uniquely my, my, own, my own kind of way. So, in my generation, it was important to have a sound and to be an individual. A lot of that, like a lot of things, like it's, 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 it's going the way of a typewriter. It's like, it's okay if you show up and you sound just like the next guy, which is uh, it's an interesting dichotomy that we find ourselves listening in. But as I digress, the, the thing you have to do is be able to embrace your sound and, uh, and what it is that you do and know that, it, that it's, it's okay to have your own sound. It's okay to have your own personality. You know, the world we live in now, they're trying to tell you, no, be like the next thing. Don't be an individual, you know? But all great music and all great art has come from people who weren't afraid of expressing themselves about whatever it is they felt. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, well, and also I would think too. I mean, you don't always want to be completely on the beat. You got to have the feel. Sometimes uh, be behind the beat, and you know, all that uh, stuff. You, you have, yeah, you have you. you a note, uh, the the feeling behind the note is more important than the note itself, and it's, it it will never change. That will never change. You play a thousand notes that don't mean anything. I mean, think about BB King. He could play four notes and make you go, "Oh, oh my God." You know yeah. what I mean? So it's, it's, it's all killed. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it's all—it's all about the feeling behind the note. <laughs> so, did you get to meet Shaka, or did you just go in and cut the? Oh, drum no, parts? no, no, no. I'm just—I've all through the first my first tenure with her was when "Ain't Nobody" was a hit, right? The first time, and then. Off and on, all the way through the 90s, I played in her band, off and on. You know, some, you know, I'd be there for a while, and then she decides she wanted to do something else. When she gets tired of that drummer, she called me back, you know. So, and she plays a little herself. <laughs> Shaka plays some of the most abstract drums and timbali solos I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah. why, why, she, why does she keep that so bottled up? You know, I guess you you would have you would have you'd have to ask you'd have to ask her. She hasn't. I haven't seen her attempt to play the drums or do a timbale solo in a, in, a, in a lot of years. You know, but you know, at the rehearsals, every once in a blue moon, she would sit down and, and play something very very unique <laughs> on the drums. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> but yeah, she's 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 you know working with her. Uh, Phyllis Hyman, you know, Roberta Flack, uh, Randy Crawford. You know, I've been very, very blessed to have worked with a lot of uh, very, very talented um, women who, you know, sing Jocelyn Brown, you know, people who really can sing. Well, Shaka is my all-time favorite, and certainly I'm not alone in that. Um, She's most people's all-time favorite. So when you're uh, work, when you're working with uh, Shaka, though, I mean, does she send chills up your spine being part of that, like she does uh, for most well, of us out in the audience? The first rehearsal, uh, way back when, again, when there ain't nobody was a hit. So we were uh, we're in the room practicing, playing, working on the song. She's not there. She comes in towards the end of rehearsal. So naturally, the band, you know, this was a young band, you know, we see her, so everybody's energy, you know, kicks into another gear. So we definitely started playing louder, if nothing else. More energy, the volume level increased. Shaka, so if the band, if the band was here, Shaka started singing and went like this. Right? And we finished the song, and she stayed up here the entire time. Right? There'd been no way for us to get there, right? When we finished, she said, "Yeah, yeah, band, yeah, band. You, you sound pretty good. You sound good. You're a little loud, but you sound good." And I'm thinking to myself, "You just came in here and kicked our ass. What loud?" <laughs> I said that. To, I didn't say that to her, but I said it to myself. It's like, I mean, she literally just flew over our heads like Michael Jordan about to uh, like dunking on you, something, you know, and uh. So yeah, she she's is when you're around the real thing, you know, not somebody imitating or copying. It's it's a it's a wonder to behold, you know. And she was my first real big wig 
jig too. You know what I mean? And so it was a, you know, it was a very, very special thing to be able to work with her and to know her and she'll know her to this day. Well, I saw her in 77 or 78 at the Roxy on Hollywood okay. Sunset Strip, which I don't know if you've been there before, but it's like a 300 seater. It's very small and intimate. When she screamed, man, talk about blowing the roof off. It was oh, just yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah. And she's the closest that we'll ever get to Aretha Franklin again, in my humble estimation. You know? Yep. Yep. <laughs> 